So today, as I conclude this study on the book of Esther, I want to begin by talking about another country, and that country is the country of Rwanda. You've probably heard of Rwanda. It was in the news big time in the 1990s. But this woman here, her name is Jean. And Jean is a Rwandan who had a tremendous neighbor named, ironically so, Innocent. And Innocent was a fisherman, and Innocent would give Jean and her husband extra fish when he would go out on his fishing expeditions because Jean and her husband had 11 children. 11. I don't even have 11 fingers. Okay? And so Innocent did that for Jean and her family consistently, but the relationships became strained in the 1990s because in the 1990s, the Hutus wanted to harm the Tutsi minority. And Jean says that she can remember her Hutu neighbors saying to her things like, one day we will come and we will kill you all. It all kind of exploded in the wake of a plane crash that happened on April 6, 1994. So on April 6, 1994, the plane carrying the Rwandan president and the president of Burundi crashed. It was actually shot down. And that sparked a series of mass killings that lasted all the way through July. The Hutu ethnic majority murdered as many as 800,000 people over a matter of months. Jean recalls that she remembers one night the Hutus came out and they forced all the Tutsis out onto the street and they ordered the, the Tutsis to form a line, she and her neighbors. And they thought, this is it, we're done for, but they were just teasing, and they let them go back home that night. But the next night, they came back with machetes. And Jean's older two sons were found, and they were butchered. And Jean fled with the rest of her children and had hid in the bush for months. Can you imagine, for a moment, what it might have been like to have been a Tutsi like Jean and to be wondering which one of your neighbors is going to show up and try and kill you. Neighbors that you know, neighbors who've done acts of service for you, right? Watched your kids. This is what it must have been like for the Jews living in Persia during the time of Queen Esther. So I want you to make this connection. Um, Haman, who was the prime minister of Persia, had sent a decree throughout the entire empire saying that on this particular date, on a year's time, you may kill any and all Jews that live in your city. And all of their possessions, their stuff, their wealth, their property, you can take as your own. And the state will sanction this and it encourages you to do so. He hated the Jews that much. And so... Can you imagine what it might have been like to be a Jew living in Persia after the degree had been issued, knowing that in less than a year's time, some of your neighbors, the man you buy your bread from, might be coming for you in the middle of the night? The book of Esther is set during the Jewish exile. At some point, at some point along the way, some of the Jews had returned to Judea and Jerusalem. But other Jews had chosen to remain behind in Persia. They had made a life for themselves. They were doing okay. And so they, they stayed behind. Esther belonged to one of those families. And they thought they were doing okay. They didn't know that in staying, they would be living under a death sentence. So 
By way of reminder, a man named Haman had been the prime minister of Persia, and he had issued a decree in the king's name, bearing the king's seal, that allowed Persians in a year's time to kill any Jews and take their property. In a last-ditch effort to stop this government-authorized slaughter, Esther went before the king and brought about this dramatic reversal. And if you'll remember that from a couple of weeks ago, the prime minister of Persia, Haman, ends up being impaled on the stake that he had erected in his front yard that he had Mordecai the Jew in mind for. But in this reversal, he ends up impaled on the very stake, and Mordecai the Jew is promoted to guess what? Prime Minister. And that's where we pick things up in Esther chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. On that same day, King Xerxes gave the property of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther. Then Mordecai was brought before the king, for Esther had told the king how they were related. The king took off his signet ring, which he had taken back from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. So Esther and her uncle are now safe. But Haman's edict, bearing the king's seal, remains in effect. And so in just nine months' time now, Persians will be legally allowed to murder their Jewish neighbors and confiscate all Jewish belongings, wealth, and property. So what happens? How does God rescue his people? And so today I want to look at the final act in the story of Esther, one that features a lot of vindication. Vindication for Mordecai, vindication for Esther, vindication for the Jews, and ultimately vindication for God. And so if I have a big idea today, it's simply this. In the end, God's going to be vindicated <laughs> in the end, God will be vindicated. And all those who put their trust in him will also be vindicated, like the man who built his house on the rock instead of the sand. So in Esther chapter 8, verse 3, she goes before the king again, falling down at his feet and begging him with tears to stop the evil plot devised by Haman, the Agagite, against the Jews. She, she pleads her case before Xerxes. How can I endure to see my people and my family slaughtered and destroyed? So it's not enough that Esther herself is safe. It's not enough that her uncle Mordecai is safe. She pleads for her family, her friends. She pleads for people she doesn't even know personally who are living throughout the Persian empire under a sentence of death. And so the king agrees. On June 21st, the king's secretaries were summoned, and a decree was written exactly as Mordecai dictated. It was sent to the Jews and to the highest officers and governors and the nobles of all 127 provinces, stretching from India to Ethiopia. So Mordecai's edict is written by the same scribes that Haman used, sent to the same 127 provinces that Haman's degree went to, and written in the same languages that Haman's degree had been written in. It's an exact reversal. <laughs> it's an exact and complete reversal. So the Jews were filled with joy and gladness. Woohoo! <laughs> and were honored everywhere. In every province and city, whenever the king's decree arrived, the Jews rejoiced and had a great celebration and declared a public festival and holiday. And many of the people of the land became Jews themselves because they feared what the Jews might do to them. So during this nine-month period, 
when Mordecai's decree goes out, and Mordecai's decree basically said this, hey, Jews, no edict of the king can ever be reversed, O Persian Empire. So, Jews, here's what you can do now. You can defend yourself. And anyone who comes after you, anyone who tries to attack you, you can kill them. You can attack them. And you can take their stuff instead. And so that was the decree that went out to those 127 provinces. And so all of the people of Persia had nine months to kind of make a decision. Hey, honey, um, are we, are we pro-Jew or anti-Jew? What do you think? Like everybody, every household had that opportunity to have the conversation. Hey, where do we stand with this? Are we, are we pro-Jew? Are we anti-Jew? Like what's going to be our stance? And so nine months later, the day comes, the day of reckoning. Will anyone attempt to kill any Jews? Uh, will the Jews be successful in defending themselves? But there's more. On March 7th, the de two decrees of the king were put into effect. On that day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but quite the opposite happened. It was the Jews who overpowered their enemies. And the kicker, the Jews gathered in cities throughout the king's provinces to attack anyone who tried to harm them, but mo no one could take a stand against them for everyone was afraid. Here's the kicker, verse 3. All the nobles of the provinces, the highest officers of the army, the governors, the royal officials helped the Jews for fear of Mordecai. For Mordecai had been promoted in the king's palace and his fame spread throughout the provinces as he became more and more powerful. So Mordecai clearly had the favor of King Xerxes. If these Jewish, if these Persian satraps and governors and military officers were American politicians, do you know what they would have on their lapel pins? Star of David pins. Hey, just want you to know, stand in a solidarity, support our brothers and sisters of the Jewish faith, right? That's how we do things in America. We support the lapel pin. And so if, if, if Persia had done things the way we do things in America, every Persian noble, every Persian governor, every Persian senior military officer would have had that Star of David on their lapel. Just, just so you all know, we've made our decision, pro-Jew, pro-Mordecai, pro-Xerxes, aren't you? Isn't everybody? Isn't everybody? And the answer to that is no. In fact, despite all of that, not everybody was on board. Verse 6 of chapter 9. In the fortress of Susa itself, that's the capital of Persia, the Jews killed 500 men. And then in other, other Jews throughout the king's provinces, verse 16, gathered together to defend their lives. They gained relief from all their enemies, killing 75,000 of those who hated them. But they did not take any plunder. In the ancient world, there were no prisons or prisoners, by and large. In the ancient world, it was I die or you die. Uh, in the ancient world, if I kill an Urgang, the Urgang family now is out for me. And they're going to gun for me. And they're going to try and get me. Robbie's like, no, don't be doing that. Uh, well, God said, don't be killing each other. And Jesus took it a step further. And yet, here we are. <laughs> here we are. Okay, still trying to cover the basics. But in the ancient world, there was this vendetta vengeance thing that played out, which is why you have whole families and tribes being wiped out in these kind of battles. And so in this 
scenario of Persia, it was a kill or be killed thing. And the people who actually took up arms, the Jews managed to defend themselves and kill those people. But the kicker is they didn't take any plunder. And the, and the text is telling us that they saw this as a kind of holy war, the way they saw the, the conquest of Canaan in some ways. They didn't, take any, they didn't take any plunder. And so here you have a large group of people living under a death sentence, that's Haman's edict, who are saved and rescued through an amazing turn of events. And so they, they have a festival verses 23 to 25, that they still celebrate today. So the Jews accepted Mordecai's proposal and adopted this annual custom. Haman, the son of blah, 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 the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted to crush and destroy them on the date determined by casting lots. The lots were called Purim. But when Esther came before the king, he issued a decree causing Haman's evil plot to backfire. And Haman and his sons were impaled on a sharpened pole. So pur is the Persian word for lot, which means to kind of throw dice. And that's how Haman selected the date upon which Persia was going to authorize its citizens to kill Jews and take their property. And so the Jewish people adopt this festival. It's called the Festival of Purim. It's celebrated today. Uh, in, in settings around the world, a lot of times there's masquerading that goes on, like we have Halloween, right, where people dress up in costumes because things are not what they seem in the book of Esther. And so that's kind of how they play off of that. But here's the thing. God will always keep his promises, and God will always deliver his people. And at the end of everything, God will be vindicated, and so will those who put their trust in him. So in the, in the book of Esther... We have this seemingly hidden God. God is not mentioned by name once in the entire book of Esther. There's not one miracle that we see, like we see in the movie The Prince of Egypt, which is based in the book of Exodus. <laughs> okay? There's not one kapow parting of the Red Sea. There's not one plague. There's not one miraculous event. But there's a string of things that just are so beyond the pale of coincidence that they bear God's fingerprints. The dismissal of Queen Vashti, the elevation of Esther, this young Jewish woman out of nowhere, the discovery of an assassination plot by Mordecai, Esther's uncle, Haman's evil schemes, Esther's mediation, the king's sleepless night, Haman just happening to come into court at the very moment that the king wants to reward Mordecai. How coincidental is that? And then Haman just happening to fall at the feet of Esther just when the king returns to the room. Just like Esther, your life is going to have some coincidences in it. And sometimes those coincidences are going to be just that, coincidences. Only sometimes those coincidences are going to be God's fingerprints, okay? So I, I want to unpack this by asking a few questions. Can you think of circumstances in your life that seemed like circumstances at the time, but now, 10 years later, five years later, seem more like God's fingerprints? Where do you really stand with Jesus? I'll get there in a moment. And then, why are we nervous? Why are we nervous to think about the punishment of the wicked? And how can this story help us come to terms with the Bible's teaching about this? 
So if I can draw this to a place where you and I live, first of all, figure out where you stand with Jesus. As I mentioned, the people of Persia had nine months, this nine-month window where they were going to decide what? Are we pro-Jew or anti-Jew? Where do we stand, honey? I don't know. Let's talk about this. We live in a similarly in-between period. Christ has come. He died a criminal's death on a cross. He rose from the dead, but he has not yet returned. And people have an opportunity to decide, am I pro-Jesus or anti-Jesus? Where do I stand in all of this? Right? All of this in the book of Esther foreshadows Jesus and foreshadows the vindication of Jesus. Jesus will come back to judge the living and the dead as King of kings and Lord of lords. And at that moment, everybody will see Jesus for who Jesus really is. No one will be thinking, well, he's just a nice teacher. Like everybody will see Jesus for who Jesus is. And all will be known. But that means, number two, there's a risk to indifference. And I would argue that for all of those people in Persia that were like, I don't want to get involved. I don't want to take sides. That was really anti-Jew, <laughs> right? And Jesus himself speaks to this. In Revelation chapter 3, he talks about hot and cold and lukewarm. Many of you are familiar with that verse, Revelation 3, verse 16. Hot means on fire, loving him. Cold means hating him, despising him. But Jesus says, if you're lukewarm, I'll what? Spit you out. So Jesus rejects indifference. And he says, eh not buying it, okay? So there's a risk to indifference. And because we live in America, we can struggle often with apathy and indifference about so many things. But Jesus is saying to us today, again, nope, <laughs> love me or hate me. It's one or the other. And then lastly, loving God means loving those who are perishing, just like God does. Um, Esther wasn't just content that her life was spared or the life of her uncle was spared when he was elevated to prime minister. She was concerned about people she had never even met, scattered all throughout the Persian Empire. And so what level of concern do we have for those who labor <coughs> under a sentence of death? Out there, right outside these doors, are people laboring under a sentence of death. Uh, the Jews in Persia knew it, they felt it, they gathered at the city gates and they mourned that fact. But wealthy Americans, eh, <laughs> they don't see things that way. So I want to I remind you of where you and I live. In America, Americans are like, eh, I'm okay, it's all okay, it's all going to come out in the wash. People are basically good, God's loving, boom. I mean... It's okay. You don't have to do anything. You really just kind of flow in life. That's all you need to worry about. Just go with the flow, in a sense. But both the testimony of the Old and New Testaments and out of Jesus' mouth himself is a warning and a caution that that's not how it works at all, right? It's not how it works at all. Uh, and so this is a good season to allow our hearts to be kind of pricked or softened so that we have concerns for those who labor under a sentence of death. Only God can save, but we can pray for, we can invest, we can invite. Those are things that we can do. Um, when I was a kid, I remember uh, my mom being absolutely not in tune and not on board with the whole church thing. 
So uh, when I was in third, fourth grade, dad would kind of drag my brother and me to this Baptist church where he had grown up in another town about 20 miles over from where we lived, and then to a different Baptist church in the town where we lived. And back in the 1970s, if you were a married man and you were coming to church alone, that was weird. <laughs> it was just really weird, okay? But he, he embraced the weirdness. And I can remember more than one well-intentioned Baptist minister coming into the living room of our home and laying out for my dear mother the pains of hell <laughs> in all its glory. And mom basically saying, no thanks, <laughs> not interested, grew up Catholic, heard that whole thing. <laughs> thanks for stopping by, have a nice day. And she would send them on their way. Uh, and I remember my dad at night, you know, when we'd have these conversations, when he tucks you in, you know, you tuck your kids into bed, those kind of things, and he would, he would say, uh, son, I'm not ever giving up on your mom and because I know God will never give up on your mom. And so I, when I was old enough, he actually asked me, would you just pray that she'll have an openness to God, right? And I remember by the time I was like middle school, early high school, you know, you think you know everything. Now, I, if you're a student here today, you can plug your ears. This isn't for you. This is for all the grownups that are on the other side of this. But when you're in middle school or high school, you think you know everything. And I I remember thinking at the time, Dad, you're so dumb. Like, this will never happen. Like, how can you be this way? How can you say these things? Like, her path is set. <laughs> and sure enough, there was a bout with breast cancer, and there were some other things. And wouldn't you know, she found her way back to God, right? Such it is with the way of life. And so I want to remind you, as I remind me and all of us this morning, that God's not done with any of us. And that you and I live in this weird, strange, in-between reality. Christ has come. At Christmas, we celebrate his birth. In just a few months, we'll retell the parts of his death and resurrection. And here we are waiting. How many years has it been? How many years? Lots! <laughs> it could be tonight. It could be tomorrow. It could be another 2,000 years. We don't know. And so we wait in this in-between time. And God is trying to continue to rescue more and more.